Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. Chris Chimes here to welcome you aboard. And Ben Baldanza here as well. Thanks for the download. So Ben and I are juggling some work and personal travel and trying to keep the content flowing each week. So this show will be a bit different from the standard format as we were recording a bit earlier from our regular schedule. And we're going to dispense with the standard news roundup and have a topical discussion with our friends at Sidley Austin about some legal matters swirling around aviation right now. But then we'll wrap up with some listener questions as we've got quite a few in the mailbox. But first, let's bring on Kevin Lewis and Bart Biggers from Sidley Austin. They've also pulled in some expertise from a few of their colleagues to talk about several issues. So we're going to have a miniature aviation law form of sorts on this episode. Kevin and Bart, welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Thanks, Chris. We're delighted to be back. Well, we've got some law and government issues we wanted to discuss, so we really appreciate your joining us. First up, there's been a, a lot of attention on the Inflation Recovery Act that was just signed into law, but there's an important provision in there about sustainable aviation fuel. Tell us about that. Thanks, Ben. We'd love to talk about that. Let me um, give you a little bit of context uh, first. You know, we and, and others of your guests have talked about how airlines and Governments uh, have set carbon emission targets and limits that are going to apply in the future, culminating in the net carbon zero pledge that uh, airlines have adopted or are subject to in 2050. And the landscape of those regulations is changing, so um, everything is moving. But everybody agrees it's going to take a massive amount of investment to create the sustainable fuel at scale that the industry is going to need and to create the vehicles that can fly using that fuel. So a lot of airlines have decided to invest directly in the development of these technologies and the build out of the new infrastructure. But the, the need for this technological development and for building up to scale this, the sustainable industry is right in the crosshairs of what the sustainability related tax provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act are aiming at. So let me tell you very briefly what the act does. And then I want to do, I want to point out one sort of interesting wrinkle in uh, the, the features that have been set up. So the act provides for two separate tax credits. One is for SAF fuel mixtures, meaning uh, neat SAF, unblended SAF, that is blended with regular jet A fuel to produce a sustainable fuel that can be used in today's aircraft. And the credit is based on the number of gallons of neat SAF that is blended into the mixture and uh, the, the credit only applies if there's a minimum reduction of life cycle greenhouse gases compared to conventional fuel of at least 50%. Uh, 
the credit starts at a buck twenty-five a gallon and maxes out at a buck seventy-five per gallon. An interesting side note: there is no additional credit given for fuels that have a negative life cycle emissions, which is something that um, may be technologically feasible. And uh, this credit applies to sales and uses up to the end of 2024. Then starting in 2025, there's a second credit that applies to the production of clean fuels more generally, and it includes SAF fuel mixtures. And in that one, the amount of the credit depends on the emissions factor of the fuel and the production of the fuel satisfying various conditions. Uh, there are So that's a general clean fuels uh, credit. And then there are provisions that supercharge the credits, so to speak, for SAF as compared to other types of clean fuels. There are some eligibility requirements that relate to prevailing wage and apprenticeship items. And that credit applies from 2025 to 2027. Both of these credits are limited to domestic production. The first one, the fuel mixture has to be produced in the U.S. and also transferred to aircraft in the U.S. The second credit only requires production in the U.S. It doesn't really address where the fuel is consumed. So the interesting side note of this is that the the taxpayers who are best suited to take advantage of these credits are probably uh, existing domestic producers of SAF and producers of renewable diesel. The reason is that the, the credits are pretty short term and there is a considerable amount of overlap between current ability to produce renewable diesel and the ability to produce SAF. And since the incentives aren't really, you know, aren't as long as some people had wished, you're probably going to be much more able to take advantage of the credits if you're just converting existing production. So the interesting uh, result of that may be that a lot of the SAF that is produced comes from refiners who are currently producing renewable diesel who switch over to SAF. It's an interesting question from a if you're just looking at it from a sustainability lens, whether the net benefit of this switchover is sort of what the people supporting this initiative were looking for. And in fact, the trucking industry made this point that, you know, why are we trying to increase SAF production at the expense of reducing the amount of renewable diesel that we're producing? But in the middle term and in the long run, uh, we think that this probably will lead to uh, additional SAF production because, first of all, it's going to emphasize and support SAF infrastructure and also because there are other alternatives to uh, surface transportation, mainly electric vehicles, that are easier to use in trucking than they are going to be, we think, in long-range aircraft. So it may be that this just uh, pushes the sustainability development uh, of of the hydrocarbons over towards SAF and pushes trucking more towards the electric side of the scale. Kevin, that's a fascinating background. Let me ask you a quick follow-up. Many times, as you know, that there are regulations or incentives like this put out by the government, we also sometimes see these unintended consequences. Is there anything obvious to you or that you worry about with this, that there could be some negative consequence here that 
isn't part of the intent of this? I think just that renewable diesel point that I made, Ben, I think in general, uh, you know, I'm persuaded and on board with the notion that there is a lot of work to be done to reach for the airline industry to reach its sustainability goals. And as we've talked about before, uh, we're very involved with a lot of our clients in doing just, you know, uh, an astonishing number of transactions where they're investing to get SAF produced at scale. Um, there are a lot of ideas of how to get the aviation industry to, to the point that it's net carbon zero, but um, regardless of how technology develops, you're never going to get to net carbon zero without a whole lot of sustainable aviation fuel. There may be alternatives, but you're going to need a lot of SAF. And it's just very hard to see how you get there without some of this government stimulation. So I think that to the extent that you're creating more SAF, you're this kind of thing I think is necessary to get the industry to where it gets to. So the unintended consequence uh, is just going to be if some of that benefit is netted out against, you know, a reduction in renewable diesel, you know, but you see lots of other people in the market, you know, putting electric vehicle charger networks all across the country. So I think you're going to see that continuing and that just may be the the give and take in this trade-off here. So a while back, we got a question from a listener about why foreign-based and foreign-flagged airlines can and do file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy reorganization in U.S. bankruptcy court. Avianca did this recently, and SAS is currently in bankruptcy in U.S. courts. I know that neither of you are bankruptcy lawyers, but can you help us unpack this? Sure. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, we spoke with one of our partners, Michael Burke, uh, in our Sydney Aviation and Airlines team, and uh, he specializes in restructurings and bankruptcy matters. He has substantial experience in aviation, including for airlines, lenders, lessors, and other financing parties, and in fact, has recently been involved in many of the Chapter 11s here in the United States. Let's go to the tape. Michael, why do international airlines file bankruptcy in the U.S.? Well, the past three years have brought on an influx of non-U.S. carriers filing Chapter 11, and uh, each of these are, have filed in the Southern District of New York. For example, Avianca, Latam, Aeromexico, Philippine Airlines, and most recently, SAS. Now, there are a number of legal and economic reasons, in my view, why a non-U.S. carrier would file Chapter 11 in the U.S., but I think the most important one is that there is a broader base of financing sources to obtain debtor in possession financing to fund a Chapter 11 case in order to get a plan of reorganization confirmed so that the company can emerge from bankruptcy. Now, the type of dip facilities uh, permits various types of transactions to help a company emerge, but that's a little beyond the scope. Also, lenders are familiar with financing in Chapter 11 cases, and it gives them certainty to have a U.S. bankruptcy court order approving the financing and allowing them to exercise remedies. In addition to debtor and possession financing, there are some certain other legal benefits. One, that filing Chapter 11 imposes the automatic stay, and that stay is worldwide. So to the extent that the bankruptcy court has jurisdiction, over the entity or person, 
it can sanction them if they interfere with the Chapter 11 cases. Additionally, aircraft creditors are familiar with the Chapter 11 process, and they will always make up a large constituency in any uh, carrier Chapter 11 case. Additionally, and a little beyond the scope of this, is that uh, a non-U.S. carrier does not have to comply with Section 1110 of the Bankruptcy Code, which generally provides certain protections to aircraft financing parties. It's not entirely clear at this point uh, whether Alternative A of the Cape Town Convention would apply to a non-U.S. carrier in a Chapter 11 case. And where is the nexus or authority allowing these carriers to file? Section 109 of the Bankruptcy Code permits a, a party to file for Chapter 11 if it has a place of business or property in the U.S. Now, that provision of the Bankruptcy Code doesn't say how much property, and it has been used in order to get jurisdiction in U.S. bankruptcy courts. In each of the cases that I mentioned before, the five non-U.S. carrier bankruptcies, jurisdiction was not challenged. And again, one of the reasons could be is because people are familiar with the Chapter 11 process. And why do the foreign governments allow this? Well, none of the foreign governments have objected to the Chapter 11 filings. And there may also be uh, complementary proceedings filed in maybe the home jurisdiction or or other jurisdictions in which the entity has operations. I'm speculating here, but the governments may believe that Chapter 11 may be the best vehicle in that particular circumstance for the carrier to survive and emerge from bankruptcy. But I want to be abundantly clear that not all aviation restructurings are filed under Chapter 11. For example, Virgin Atlantic was filed under the Companies Act in the UK, and um, Virgin Australia uh, filed administration and emerged under a deed of company arrangement. So not every aviation restructuring or not every bankruptcy is a Chapter 11. And if U.S. laws provide a better chance of reorganization, why don't the foreign nations adopt similar bankruptcy laws in their own countries? Well, as mentioned, there are uh, other jurisdictions that have um, somewhat similar or more mature uh, insolvency laws, and uh, companies regularly will file insolvency in their home jurisdiction. In addition, there's the Unsatral model insolvency laws, and guides on cross-border cases. But I believe in many instances when you're looking for debtor and possession financing and to fund the company during a case, many times the lenders will feel more comfortable in Chapter 11 than they will in other jurisdictions. Again, this is speculation, but seeing as the number of filings in the U.S. is usually greater, I think it's reasonably drawn. And then, guys, as our regular listeners know, and you probably are aware too, we've been dancing around the Spirit Airlines acquisition, given Ben's role on the JetBlue Board of Directors. We don't want to talk specifically about the transaction and the merits or its deficiencies, but we were interested in sharing with our listeners a little more insight on the antitrust review process that awaits the deal. Hey, Chris, thanks very much for letting us talk about that. 
I did have the chance to catch up with one of my partners, Karen Kazmerzak. She's a co-leader of our antitrust competition practice. She's also a former Federal Trade Commission lawyer, and she does a tremendous amount of antitrust work in the airlines and aviation space. Um, I passed along the questions that you asked, and uh, let me hand it over now to Karen. As some of the listeners may know, the Department of Justice is responsible for enforcing the antitrust laws in the airline industry, including authority to review mergers between airlines operating in the U.S. For example, the DOJ recently reviewed and sought to challenge the proposed Northeast alliance between two domestic carriers. It is also the agency responsible for reviewing JetBlue's proposed acquisition of Spirit. Without commenting on either of those matters, I thought it would be helpful to update listeners on recent DOJ developments that could make those sitting on the sidelines a bit more interested in how antitrust enforcement priorities under the Biden administration could affect these combinations. Antitrust enforcement has been undergoing a renaissance over the last year and a half. One of the key signals that this administration plans to increase enforcement came with the issuance of an executive order on competition in July 2021. Among other initiatives, the order mandated the federal agencies to cooperate to improve competition in the airline industry. The executive order was followed by a number of significant antitrust enforcement initiatives announced by Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor in the months following his arrival as the head of the DOJ Antitrust Division in late 2021. Many of the DOJ's initiatives create challenges for merging parties used to the status quo. There are three main DOJ initiatives that are having crucial effects on merger reviews. First, the DOJ is taking a much closer look at industries that lack a diversity of firms, i.e. markets with few competitors. That's true even if the merging parties are much smaller compared to other industry participants. The underlying assumption is that prices have increased significantly in those industries where fewer competitors compete. Second, the DOJ disfavors relying solely on the tools historically used to assess the potential harms of a merger. Merger reviews historically focus primarily on whether a consumer would be harmed if the merger went through, such as by having to pay more for a product. The current administration believes that DOJ's historical reliance on this old standard and the tools developed to apply the standard often led to under-enforcement in that under-enforcement has made consumers worse off over the long run. It has also failed to protect workers and small business owners. Third, the current DOJ also disfavors settlements. That means more litigation against proposed mergers. The rationale is that merger remedies often miss the mark because merger remedies are hard to design and often fail to precisely restore competition lost from the merger, especially when taking into account how competition evolves in dynamic industries. Merger remedies also fail to move the law forward because a settlement does not create clear precedence in those markets. In sum, this administration's antitrust enforcement agenda is anything but status quo. Antitrust laws will be enforced much more expansively, including assessing how labor markets and small businesses can be affected by mergers. And the DOJ uh, has shown it is willing to litigate, not settle, and it will use all the enforcement tools available to it. So guys, we appreciate you bringing your colleagues into this conversation and, and your point of view as well. Uh, as we wrap up, any other hot topics you guys are carefully watching or have any thoughts on? 
Sure, Chris. Uh, as we finish up what's another summer of IROPs here in the United States, uh, to a lesser extent than last year, uh, but you know, Northern Europe's been hit hit hard by it as well, and also wrapped up uh, earnings season here recently. One of the the major topics that happened on all those calls was uh, supply chain and staffing. And when we look at that, we spend a lot of time in it. We we know on the the metal side, we're starting to see some of the supply chain smooth out a little bit. I know we had the 787 start to be delivered as well. Uh, and there's been a little bit of smoothing. I think there's still some work there. Of course, that along with the other issue we're going to talk about has caused RASM to be up and also CASM to be up, uh, which was a common theme of those calls. But on the staffing side, uh, the disruptions that you normally have, like weather, have obviously been there as, as well. And we obviously had, a, as I think you mentioned on a podcast a couple of months ago, just an unbelievably hot summer, uh, which affects the crews that are out there. But we also have the shortages on the flight crews, the airport crews, and the ATC. So the one we focus on the most is the, the pilot side. And uh, that shortage has even caused unequal distribution of left side and right, right side seats. So um, for a pilot to raise up to the ranks, uh, there may not be enough captains to actually get them the training uh, for them to stick through the right side, and it's, it's even causing issues there. But when we look at this, we see that the regionals are setting in between the mainline and the pilots that then potentially want to flow up from the mainline's perspective to the mainline. And as we see that, we're starting to see a market change start to occur, realize that the, the regional has a contract with its mainline and then has a, a, a contract with its regional. We've seen American and Mesa both go in and, and make a substantial pay increase to the pilots under their contracts for the wholly owned American uh, regionals and Mesa to increase the, the volume of pilots coming through the program. And where do you think this goes uh, from there? Well, obviously, Chris, uh, those of us that have been through the regional market, and Kevin and I have both spent a lot of time over the last couple of decades or more on this, uh, you know, everything ebbs and flows, right? So I think we will we will see that there's still a shortage. I, I know that it's estimated we need over 14,000 pilots over the next decade. So I don't think this is going to go away, and it's just a matter of when the, the main lines feel like they and the regionals feel like they've got the equilibrium they need to create a proper flow. I also, if just to add in, Chris, I think uh, this is an interesting uh, sort of dynamic we're seeing in the market because in the, the regional jet segment uh, or industry is about 20 years old. And I've been involved in this since the beginning. I don't think I've ever seen a situation where you've got sort of a rapid change in an important part of the market. And right now we're talking about the market for pilots. And it's kind of intermediated, as Bart was saying, where you've got the main line paying the regional, you know, based on what is usually a long-term contract with embedded assumptions and provisions about what pilot pay is. And then you've got the regionals having to react very quickly to pilot pay. And, you know, sometimes the regional, you know, is forced to react and uh, make an obligation to make payments without knowing that, you know, what the consequence is on the other side of that transaction where it's the intermediary, you know, because these are things that aren't accounted for in the contract that the regional has with the mainline. So all of that is like a, a phenomenon that you might expect would take a year or two to work its way through the system, except it's going to work its way through the system in a matter of months 
just because of the how dynamic the 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 situation is. But are there enough pilots in the pipeline to get them in the cockpit? I guess is one of my well, questions. I mean, Al- so, Alpa says there isn't a shortage; it's just a shortage of money, not a shortage right. of pilots. Well, <laughs> like so, everything, so this solves this. But there, where, where are they going to come from? There's two things. Whenever there's a shortage, there's always two issues, right? One is there's a general shortage, and the other is do I have a shortage? <laughs> so. Uh, what's going on is trying to increase the overall number of pilots, but you know, it's also, uh, uh, a game of, you know, can I take your pilots? Yeah. And, and Chris, in that regard, you, you, we see a very active market and, and it goes from the LCCs to your mainline carriers that you've seen for years that have their, their flow up. But there's a little bit of a battle right now between where a pilot, as they flow through someone's system, goes and sticks and how quickly they can get to that left seat. That's a lot of times what they're seeing. And I said, there's even an equilibrium issue right now between having enough left seats to get the right seat to even flow up. So right now we're seeing that as a very, very active market. And it's something that, frankly, I don't know a carrier that's not that they're not focused on and really drilled into and trying to resolve. Because as I said, it's something we expect to be out there for the next decade, frankly. So if you're running a regional, you've got to worry about every one of those factors that Bart just said, and you got to hope that the overall number of pilots is increasing. And then you got to take a look at where you are on the totem pole as far as, you know, who's at the very bottom. And if there's a shortage, who runs out first? And what makes you attractive? And so that's part of what this market change we're talking about you're seeing is what makes you attractive as an as an airline. I appreciate you guys bringing this issue up. It is really important. I have a longer term concern here and tell me if I'm crazy for thinking this. As the regionals become more expensive because they have to pay pilots more, at some point, do the airlines that pay for this, the big airlines that employ that flying, say, you know, these marginal cities we can no longer afford to serve because we can't get the price high enough given the small market demand to cover these higher pilot costs. So I'm just worried that service to the smallest communities in the U.S. shrinks over time because of this. Is that crazy? I don't think it's crazy, but there are a lot of things that impact that also, though, right? Congestion at uh, hubs where you basically, even if, you know, even if you could make money flying a small plane to, you know, city X, you don't want to take up the gate or the landing slot or, you know, the space at the airport to deal with it because you've got everything you, you can handle with, you know, wide bodies. So I think that's part of the mix. I mean, you still have the issue of the gap, Uh, you know, I don't think pilot pay is only going up at the regionals, right? So the gap in pilot pay will inform the economics on the size of the plane. And Ben, you know, first of all, we would never tell you you're crazy on the air, but uh, <laughs> regardless of that, you know, this is something that, that you know, sometimes the government steps in and, and provides subsidies around that. And there's essential air service agreements. And, and I think that's something that we're going to have to look at because no, you're absolutely right that, you know, at a certain point, the numbers just don't work. Uh, although you may start to see more smaller aircraft come back, there's been a, a move away from 50 seaters. Maybe that starts to come back to provide some of that service outside of scope, because most of the time the the scope is for a, a larger RJ. 
And so there may be some some work around that that you start to see. But in general, it's an issue that that we're absolutely going to have to look at and something that the, the a lot of times Congress will start to, to realize as they start to look at their base, they have to start to address. And then it goes back to the subsidy issues that we were talking about on SAF as mm-hmm. well. Exactly. I think those planes, the whole reason the regional segment exists in the first place, there were, you know, I think kind of two big drivers. One was the technology of those smaller jets in terms of the, the amount of fuel per passenger you were using. And then the amount you can afford to pay a pilot if he's faring around, you know, 40 people as opposed to 240 people. So the higher those pilot costs go, the, the, I mean, it's a, I, I can't believe I'm saying this when, when jet a prices are so high, but the, you know, the relative cost of the fuel kind of becomes a smaller impact. Um, and as you get to sustainability and if you're using, you know, short haul electric aircraft, the fuel piece of that rationale for having a regional segment, I don't know, might become less important. So then it just comes down to the difference in pilot pay. And if the pilot pay isn't a big enough difference, then you may be right. The whole segment may just kind of, you know, disappear or, or be a lot smaller. There are are current alternatives, right? You've got busing and other, uh, and maybe our, our, you know, U.S. system is not really set up as much around trains, but uh, you know, there's some, some could be some movement to that, and also the developmental aircraft, like Kevin was talking about. You know, that's a way we can potentially invest in the industry and and make this issue that we're dealing with a solution for the long term. Well, we're sitting here in September. Why don't we make a date to uh, revisit this in March, six months from now, and see what's changed? We look forward to it. That'd be great, right. guys. Thank you for joining us. We'll be right back with more airlines confidential. A reminder that this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. And airline operations teams know that load planning for any operation is complex and time-consuming. Aerodata can help. Aerodata's load planning solutions computerize and automate the entire load planning process, streamlining workloads, optimizing load distribution, enabling airlines to maximize their payloads, and ultimately eliminating potential delays by flagging flights that require extra attention. The solutions also integrate with reservation systems, cargo vendors, baggage scanning, container operations, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and connect with your Aerodata team. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Time for some listener questions. Remember, our email address is questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or you can visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit a question. 
Our first question is from Peter in Connecticut. And Ben, I'm going to let you take this one because there, there is no good way to go on this, I don't think. <laughs> hey, Ben and Chris, with airlines so concerned about weight and passengers so concerned about fees, why don't airlines charge check baggage by the pound? This seems to be an equitable solution. Let's say $1 per pound, and with the average suitcase at 30 pounds, it's not too far from current bag fees. It likely would be difficult to do check bags at the gate, but perhaps there's a different solution for that. More importantly, it could incentivize people to travel lighter, which of course means less fuel burn. It also gives the dispatcher an accurate snapshot of the real performance of the aircraft so they can make some performance tweaks and optimize payload. Well, there's some really good ideas here, I think, Peter, Uh, but there are some challenges with it as well. I think you're right. The idea of charging per weight versus for bag might create the right kind of incentives, but I don't know how much an incremental incentive it is versus just having the bag fee in the first place. We know since the industry started widely charging for bags that fewer people carry bags and people generally do pack later because of the fees. The issue would be whether or not people would try to break things out into small smaller things. And so you have a 20-pound bag and a second 20-pound bag. In your case, you pay for 40 pounds, but in the current case, you'd only pay for one bag if you put everything in a bag. So it might end up being more expensive for the consumer. Years ago, when I worked at Taka Airlines in Central America, we did charge by weight, not by piece. And that created some real interesting behaviors. What we found is that people without luggage didn't worry about not having luggage. They would literally bring 20 different things and dump it all on the scale and say, put this on the airplane for me. And Taka had a deal with that. Eventually, they came to realize that charging by the bag made more sense. But your idea, charging for the weight of the bag versus the piece of the bag, I think you'd have to work out training issues, customer acceptance issues. And the real thing is whether or not customers would end up getting stuck with much higher fees because they don't consolidate as much. Chris, do you see um, a problem here that I missed? No, I think you've covered it. Although, again, we talked a couple of weeks ago about easier ways to board. And this, to me, just adds more complexity. Peter, it's a, it's a valid idea with potential solutions for other implications and other issues with aircraft performance. But airports are crowded. You're trying to move a lot of people through, adding this complexity when right now, more and more airlines. I think Alaska's getting ready to uh, do their check bag at home pilot to lessen the interface between customers and and staffed check bags and move them through quickly. Airlines are looking for quicker ways to handle bags, and this I think would be a huge speed bump. 
Well, with that, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. And then, Ben, we have a question from Nick uh, right down the road from you in Washington, D.C. I appreciate your comments on the passenger experience differences on a 737 versus an Airbus 320. Just for the record, the correct answer was an Airbus 320 Neo over a 737NG, but a 737 MAX over an Airbus 320 Neo. I guess that's that's Nick's point of view. The MAX is the smoothest and quietest ride in the current narrow-body market. Seat configuration is too airline-dependent to compare. My question, however, is what advantages or disadvantages do these aircraft have from an airline management perspective? Versatility, efficiency, reliability, and other topics. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Thanks, Nick. I think the issue really depends on the airline. If the airline's flying 100 Airbus airplanes, the first 737, whether it's an NG or MAX, is going to be very disruptive, right? You're going to need to have differently trained pilots. You're going to need to understand what cities that plane goes to, and do you have mechanics and parts that can fix that plane? Once you have a reasonable size fleet, like American United and Delta all do, you could fly both types and have critical mass in both. So the real issue is there's a reason these are the two most popular airplanes flown around the world. From a management standpoint, it comes down to how much do you pay for the planes and how simple is your operation In terms of do I have lots of different airplane types, so I'm generating a lot of pilot training cycles with every new plane I bring in, or I just have one plane type, so I train and then do recurrent and I'm done. From a versatility, efficiency, and reliability standpoint, the planes really are quite comparable. I'm wondering why you think the 737 MAX beats the A320neo because of the smoothest and quietest ride. Having flown both airplanes multiple times, I've certainly, from a customer standpoint, not noticed a difference in the smoothness or or loudness or quietness of the ride, but there may be something there and you may know that. So I appreciate your comments. Chris, I'm going to give my shout out this week to the Lufthansa Group, who have done something as a first in the world, which is introduce a green fare. They're testing this in Scandinavia. And the idea is that when you buy this green fare, which they say will be offered among all the fares they offer, it guarantees that the company will be offsetting 100% of the 
emissions on your flight. So basically, you're paying Lufthansa to buy the credits needed to offset your flight. I actually think this is a very good idea for a couple of reasons. One, it allows people to put their money where their mouth is. If they say they want to fly more sustainably, this gives them a very direct way to do it, not just pick airlines that are better at this than others, but say, I'm going to buy the fare that guarantees that. Um, the press release doesn't say how much more expensive these fares are. I think that will go a long way to determining how popular or unpopular they are. But I think it's a really good idea. It's a good way to sort of take a very real issue. How do we get the industry more sustainable? Bring it right to the consumers through a fair. And I'll be interested in watching to see how successful this is. Yeah, me too. I wasn't aware of that until you just mentioned it. So thanks uh, for that and a good shout out. I'm going to do another around the world shout out. And this one is to the Qantas management team down in Australia. They have asked all management employees to quote volunteer. I think it's a strongly suggested volunteer uh, verb there, but to volunteer for the next three months to go to the airports and help with baggage handling as they continue to grapple with staffing issues down under just like the rest of aviation. So I hope they're getting a good turnout. Um, I hope they're getting from the C-suite down and I hope they're making a difference to move those bags. So with that, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you here next week. And thanks to the Sidley Austin team for a great interview on some very important topics. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.